Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist, flutist, composer, and arranger, the great Don Braden. His latest album was 2015's Luminosity, and in the fall of 2016, he will release Earth, Wind, and Wonder. Don was born in Cincinnati and raised in Louisville, and in the 1980s, he went to Harvard as an engineering major. After writing code for software in New York City for some time, music won out. He went on to jam with cats like Lonnie Smith, Betty Carter, Wynton Marsalis, Roy Haynes, Freddie Hubbard, J.J. Johnson, Art Farmer, and the list goes on and on. Over his long career, he has recorded over 19 CDs as a leader and 80-plus as a sideman. And there's always more to come now that he's taking a break from teaching. So, dig this interview, my friends. We are good to go. Don, thank you for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So, I'm going to go ahead and start off here. I know you're always busy, but in your own words, give me a snapshot of activity that's going on in your world these days. I just finished the summer uh, doing several jazz camps. And that's one of the things I do. I run Litchfield Jazz Camp in Connecticut. That's four weeks. And then also participated in the Texas Jazz Camp, which is a, a small camp in partnership with Litchfield. That's in Austin, Texas. So we did that right before Litchfield for a few days. And then I was in the Jazz Works Jazz Camp, which is in Canada. So I just spent about four days there. Five days, actually. And that was, they were all really fun and, and great experiences, uh, you know, musically and just the, just the whole thing of sharing the music with folks is, is great fun, and, and we did a lot of great playing, great faculty members, professional level faculty members, and a lot of great music was made. So that's what I just finished. Uh, now, fall season, so I'm not in a, for the first time in, actually it's the second year now in, in about 18 years, I'm not in a, any university teaching positions, and uh, that's really neat because I decided last year to focus more on playing and writing and promoting my career, so that's I'm focusing on that now. So I've got a few records I'm working on. The one of my from my actual work in jazz groups is going to be called Earth, Wind, and Wonder, and it's the music for Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Stevie Wonder, organized and arranged for a Straight Ahead Jazz performance. And I've been doing some gigs with that group, and then we're doing um, the, the you know we've done some recording already, and I'll have a CD release for that in uh, April or so of next year, sometime in the spring. And then I have. Three more projects, something with Vanessa Rubin, with whom I did a really a fun record, and we have a really active group as well. We have a kind of a, our content is kind of along the lines of Houston Person and Etta Jones. It's really kind of a bluesy, straight ahead, and really fun, interactive uh, kind of a jazz situation. I love working with singers, and so that's one of the things that uh, that group really uh, is, is my one of my favorite venues for that, and Vanessa Rubin's an awesome. And then I have a funk band called Big Fun, with K and Prince's Big Funk. And so we, we're working on a new record as well. And so uh, the Big Funk album will probably come out next year sometime as well. We're halfway through recording that. So we're going to go back in this fall and finish it up. we got a few gigs this fall. And finally, I have a, a kind of experimental, explorational jazz trio called the Trio of Liberty. And that's with Eurus uh, Tape, the, the Dutch bass player. Gene Jackson is was one of the drummers. And then we did another, uh, some other record with Gene and Yuris and myself, and the other half with Matt Wilson and Yuris and myself, great drummer. So that's the Trio Liberty Project will be coming out. I'll probably get it, uh, the audio produced and the record, actually physical CDs in hand by November, and then we'll see about an actual physical release, uh, official record release. So that's kind of what I'm working on now, the Trio of Liberty, Earthwind and Wonder, and then the Vanessa Rubin Project. Man, so you're like a kid in the candy store now that you're not at the university level, releasing a lot of stuff. Big time, big right time. On, it's man. great, and it's That's and cool. It's, it's you know, it's I enjoy teaching. I think teaching is fantastic, but it does take a lot of time. 
when my last interim job finished at Harvard, which was uh, this past uh, last May, May of 15, that was my last job. I was interim instructor of jazz, uh, the jazz ensemble at Harvard University. When that job finished, I opted to, to focus on playing, and it's just fantastic. What a, what a concept, a jazz artist that actually <laughs> plays gigs for a living. That's right. That's right, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. let me ask you this. You, let me talk about your childhood. You were born in Cincinnati and raised in Louisville. How did you get interested in music, and more specifically, jazz? Um, the music part of it came from uh, the environment of, of the 1960s and 70s radio, which is, which is you know the deal in those days. I mean, you listened to the radio a lot in those days, and radio was really kind of fertile because you, you heard uh, a mix of different things, maybe at different times on the same station. You know, now things are really formatted and, and kind of specific within, you know, station by station. But in those days, if you had, a, like in Louisville, we li- when I grew up, we listened to the black radio station, and the black radio station played everything from straight-ahead jazz to the, the R&B and pop and all kinds of different music, you know. And, and so we'd tune in WLOU, and we'd hear jazz at night, and we'd hear all the pop tunes during the day. And so it was, um, that was part of it. And then my parents were big music fans. They weren't musicians or anything, aren't musicians, and weren't, they were big fans of music, so we always had records playing in the house and stuff like that. And I was a big fan of the Jackson 5 and the Osmonds and Earthwind and Fire, Stevie Wonder, all those groups in the 70s, you know. And so all that, and those bands had, you know, there was always horns in there and lots of good singing and lots of good grooves and music. So that was my big, the environment was very musical and so it was very stimulating to me. And then I had a school band that, that I joined, which also, fueled my uh, interest in music, and, and because I was big, they gave me a tenor saxophone <laughs> so, in eighth grade, and so uh, that worked out pretty well, and uh, my mom says I want to play violin, although I don't remember that, but, um, you know, I just had an interest in the sounds of music. I, when I started listening to, well, actually one of my favorite artists back in those days was Isaac Hayes, who was a great singer and writer and arranger, but he also played some saxophone, so I think my first sounds of saxophone were from him, the first guy I really heard play saxophone. And then later I got introduced to the Crusaders and Grover Washington Jr. That's from listening to the, the radio station. You know, I played the funk jazz, which it really wasn't straight ahead jazz. It was more like the pop funk jazz. And so the Crusaders, Wilson Felder. When after I joined my, after I started high school, I joined a garage band of all things. They actually had these things called garage bands. They have software now, of course, but back in the day, people actually rehearsed in garages in the, in the 70s in Kentucky. So we, I joined a garage band called Stratosphere, and that was really the first. I'd only been playing a couple of years of saxophone, but I could improvise already because I used to play along with the radio all the time. That's how I practiced. And I joined this band, and they basically inspired me to, to really get practicing. And then finally I joined, I went to the Jamie Abersold Summer Jazz Clinic, and Jamie Abersold is a great jazz educator, um, kind of legendary, and lives in New Albany, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville. And so I went to his summer camp, and I studied saxophone with one of his protégés and so those guys really plugged me into straight ahead jazz the, the garage band was more of kind of a funk jazz and between that the funk jazz the straight ahead jazz of Jamie Ebersold and the school band I was on that saxophone all the time and I was a, I was a maniac practicer like completely disciplined and just was you know it was fantastic really great time and I was a good student too so really you know I was able to I had I had really good just just through basically good luck, <laughs> I figured out how to get my, my studies and my practicing kind of coordinated and stayed on target, stayed on task, and it was really fantastic because it really helped me. It really helped me stay out of trouble. <laughs> so that was a good nice. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So was it always music for you, or did you have other dreams? I know you did engineering in the 80s at Harvard, but was music always on your map? Music was music has always been on my map, and I didn't think that I could that I could make a living in music. So my intention was to become an engineer, and so I focused a lot on my sciences in school and at Harvard as well. And even since then, I worked, I worked as a software engineer for about twelve years. After I took my time off from Harvard, I went and joined some Harvard guys in the software company, and we worked in New York and in Boston and stuff for for yeah, a good ten twelve years writing software, and that was really what I did until my music career really took off. Uh, it was great, and um, I had a lot of. Uh, I still was. I was always in high school. I was interested in sports. So I was on a track team and uh, played a little basketball, and I also was on a chess team. You know, I did a lot. I had a lot of interests and did lots of things. I was a really active kid. Still am. How does that work for you? I mean, that's a real right brain, left brain thing. How do both of those coincide to make you such a good musician? Well, I figure the creative side of it and the analytical side. They they work together in music, especially in jazz, pretty much at all times. I mean, you really have to, you know, jazz music in particular, because it's improvised, has the internal has the implicit creativity, but there's also a huge amount of logic that goes with how I think about uh, certain aspects of improvisation, especially the harmony part of it. I mean, there's there's you know you can look at it very logically, and there's, and there's systems and there's cycles. There's structure and form. There's all this stuff. And the computer programming is the same. Computer programming is about structure and numbers and all that, but it's also about creatively solving a problem, getting from point A to point B. Improvised jazz solo is improvising from point A to point B. You've got your spot to start the tune. You've got the, the last solo just finished. You're going to solo up into the next solo. You're getting from point A to point B. And you, you've got you know, a large number of, of pathways you can take and the methods for determining those pathways are a combination of logic and creativity, like so many things. So when you get to New York City in 84, how fast did you jump into the jazz scene? Well, you know, I started pretty quickly. I mean, I, I have to I owe a great debt of gratitude to the great John Lewis, the pianist from the Modern Jazz Quartet. His son and I were in the Harvard Jazz Band together. His name is Sasha Lewis, and uh, who's a lawyer now. I'm not sure if he's still playing, but he's an alto player, and we sat in the Harvard Jazz Band together. And he used to invite me to stay at his place in New York. So I got to hang out with John Lewis a bunch of times, and they found me my first place in New York City. So once I got settled, then my I did two main things. I, wa I walked around to all the clubs in Harlem, which I was that was the neighborhood I was in, just north of Harlem in, in, in Washington Heights. So I'd go and hit those clubs pretty much every night or every evening or you know several nights a week, and then I'd go down to the Blue Note. And uh, there's a jam session there that all the cats – Kind of the real up-and-coming cats, young guys were hanging out down there. The, Har the Harlem guys were more the chilling circuit characters, and that was the older guys. So they kicked my butt around in the blues, and, you know, I got to hang out with Harold Vick and and um, Tawani Smith and Jack McDuff and those kind of guys. I learned from watching those guys. And then I went downtown and hung out with Winard and Philip Harper and Mike Mossman and all the younger guys playing. So between those two situations, I got a good dose of of, of real serious, you know, education. And then you go on to play with, you know, Betty Carter, Whit Marsalis, Roy Haynes, Art Farmer, yep. Freddie Hubbard. Yep, yep. What, did you, what do you learn from cats that have such experience and such mileage on their odometer? The basics. That's In the end, the, the basics are what you, what you really, especially when you're young like I was. Like I, I, got, I, I, I was introduced to Betty Carter when I was 22 or something, and I joined Whit Marsalis that same year. And so, you know, I, I was still desperate. As much as I've been playing pretty actively and practicing a lot and listening a lot and all that, I still had a ton to learn. And 
a lot about the basics, a lot about what's the priorities, like what's important, what's the most important thing. And the most important things I learned from those guys are like, number one is the sound. Number two is rhythm, the swing, you know, and the things and the things you have to do to get those things, the sound and rhythm and swing. And then the harmony side of it, of course, is always kind of an ongoing thing. I learned about learning tunes. I learned from Moore Haynes about knowing the lyrics of tunes. I learned about from Betty Carter about how to play with a singer, how to how to interact with a singer without being a being a typical tenor player playing a ton of notes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of thing. How to pace yourself, I'll, you know, and and I'll, how to travel. That was a huge thing of how to how to deal with all the aspects of travel, you know. And it wasn't like they sat me down and said, "Okay, this is what you do." It's like, "Okay, you're in it. Figure it out." <laughs> you know? And you watch you watch them and you and you see see what they do and you see what they don't do and you you screw up and you and you recover and you all that. It's, it's, it's a very human process, and you learn yeah. how to manage your energy, you know, because that's a big deal, especially when you're on the road with somebody, you know. Uh, yeah. You learn about respect, you know. You learn there's a, a lot of life lessons, man. It's huge. In fact, I'm, I've been writing, I've been organizing, uh, starting to write notes now about all this stuff because you know, I, I teach a lot, as you know, and uh, I have taught quite a bit. There's so much to share that I want to just, you know, uh, let folks know about because, the more that we can share, the more efficiently the younger folks can get to whatever they can get to. And in the end, the better off they're going to be, which means the better off we'll all be, right? The better off anybody gets to that person, every every person's, every person's contribution in general contributes to the totality, which raises everything, which is really my goal. And I look at the thing as a very kind of holistic, inclusive scenario in that way because it's all a win-win scenario in general. And you've got competition and all that, but that's that's not the main deal. Competition is part of it, but the main story is we're all on the same team, and anybody does better, we all do better. So as much as I can share, that's what I do. Right on. So after 19-plus CDs as a leader, over 80 as a sideman, what's the conversation that you like to have when you either hop in the studio or on, on stage? How can we communicate with folks? How can we interact? How can we share so that in the end, the experience is powerful and, and moving and inspiring to everybody in the situation. And there's lots of answers to that. Everything from us leading from the front with our skill and with our expressiveness to us coming towards the audience with some tunes that they know. So there's one a wonder project is, and, I, and lots of my projects, I've always included, you know, standards and jazz, pop tunes, all kinds of things, you know, as a way to reach out to folks come towards them a little bit, you know, build a bridge, as it were, to the listener. And that way they have that much more of a of a of an entree into understanding what it is that we do. And so that they can get the maximum potential expressive experience out of it. And so the, the, the that's that's the, the biggest question of all is that. I guess, you know, besides the ongoing artist question of, you know, how do I maximize my own um skill? How do I live up to the standards of the music? How do I squarely earn my place in the tradition? That's the personal side of it. And then with regards to actually doing it, how do we continue to connect with folks and have them connect with us and create this ongoing win-win and all of, all, all the elements that go with that, but everything from, you know, uh, getting them to, to, to know about the gig marketing to sharing CDs with them and, and that side of it to, you know, the actual performance itself and the visual side of the performance, you know, what am I wearing, everything. There's all these elements to it. But in the end, I know that inherently from all these years of experience, and we can look around and see it, that the music is inherently a very positive thing. 
So then, you know, I'm looking for ways to to keep it going and keep that positivity as part of what I do to maximize my ability to keep doing it until it's time to stop, which is 50 years down the road or whatever yeah. it is. Sure, sure. You know, the thing that's always interesting to me about musicians, specifically jazz, is that when you start getting into that realm of film and TV, it seems like it's a side project, but you get so much saturation by the audiences. Do you have a lot of fun composing for TV and film? Definitely, definitely. It's a big challenge. It's really hard to do. I haven't done it for a while, but I did it for some years. It is um, a whole different way of, of, it's not a whole different way, but it's different than, than, the, than the standard jazz player's perspective. It's, um, you've got to, what I end up doing is looking at the picture and putting my hands on the piano. That's basically how I write. That's how, that's where it starts. And then there's, then there's, once that, once that part of it gets done, then there's a whole craft aspect to it. There really is, uh, you know, timing and deadlines and the sound of it and the mix of it. And there's all this stuff. There's all these details that kind of go with it once you're kind of getting the craft side of it. But the, but the idea that you look at something visually on the screen and put your hands on a piano and see what comes out, um, that's different than, than being on the saxophone on the bandstand with somebody, you know, and, and you know the tune or you don't know the tune, whatever it is, and you're dealing with that. It's just, and so that, that, that contrasting experience is very enriching, which is one yeah. of the reasons I like it. But, it, but this can be stressful because the deadlines are serious. You know, they, 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 that TV and film deadlines, especially TV deadlines particularly, because TV is like, you know, it's real time oftentimes, and so you really do have a short um, time to get a, a lot done. And the, yeah. the kind of going thing, you, you can write about two to three minutes per eight hours kind of thing, two, three minutes per day before your brain shuts down. <laughs> so you really got to gotta get a crank. So it's, it's, but it's great. It's fantastic. So Yeah. But that, you know, you've talked about so many people that the world would consider jazz heroes that you've played with. And all of these musicians that you listened to growing up that influenced you, you're in New York City where the best of the best go. So let me ask you kind of a mystical question. If you could get into a jazz DeLorean and go anywhere in history, who do you want to see and where are you going to go to see that show? Yeah, so the, the, the for me, the straight-ahead jazz of the 60s is, is the closest to something I want to get deeper into in terms of understanding it more. And there's a lot of records. There's a lot I've studied that I've done. There's a lot of videos, too. So the videos I watch are always mostly those. So the Miles Davis groups of the 60s, the Coltrane group of the 60s, Art Blakey groups of the 60s, those groups really, really get me going. And then there's, there's the groups of the 70s, I, since, since I kind of came up in the 70s, I kind of have an affinity for them because I was there. So I did, I saw Fat Mel, and I, you know, I, thought, I felt like I saw a lot of bands in the 70s. I saw Woody Shaw. I saw a lot of bands I, got, I was able to see of people, you know, who are like 70s, you know, vintage characters. Joe Henderson, people like that, you know, a lot of people. But the 60s is, is an era that I really love that I didn't get to see at all. Even though I was I was still a kid in the '60s, so I didn't you know I just didn't get, get around seeing things. So that would that that's what I would love to have personally gone to Philharmonic Hall to see him record My Funny Valentine. And I'll say this to those guys and George Coleman and Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter, Tony Williams record the album My Funny Valentine. I wanted to be there at that gig. That would have been really cool. <laughs> or in the studio yeah. with, with with Wayne and them on Speak No Evil. Like that would have been amazing too. Man, you know? yeah, absolutely. You know, it always seems to me that answer is either Charlie Parker for obvious reasons and Miles Davis for obvious. But let me ask you this. What was it? What, what were those guys doing? What was Miles and, and Herbie and all those guys doing at that time? Were they hitting a stretch run? Were they coming? What was going on, do you think, that made them so potent at that time? The key 
was probably Miles himself was part of it. And I think the other key was that at that time, because Miles was just magical, you know, so I think the music is not ever about a single person, but Charlie Parker was magical, Miles was magical. Like, so many of the cats were were, were, were at least medium magical, but those guys were extra magical. Like, yeah. Bird and Miles were particularly magical. Um, so I think Miles created an environment which was super fertile for cats. I think the other thing that happened, like, in the 60s, what really happened was you had 20 years, or 15 anyway, from from late 40s through the 50s to the, the early mid-60s, where cats were really focusing on straight ahead jazz. It hadn't it was moving away from the dance side of it and it was just about the, the creativity side of it mainly. That was like the main so like the videos the audience was was, was sitting watching it. And I love dance. I love the dance gigs. I played my share of you know all that stuff. So I love it and respect all that. But in terms of what the, the next level of the elements or the the um substance of jazz itself, harmony, melody, rhythm, interaction, that kind of stuff really happened in the concert hall because the dance guys were kind of you know, they they had they had a job to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was busy. Yeah. You had to make those, you keep those people dancing, or you're out of there. They'll find find somebody else who can keep them dancing. It was really about that. The late '40s, early mid '50s, all the way through the '60s was really more purely about the creative side of it. And so, with Cats having spent the, the 15 years from that that of that period with that focus, by the time you get to the mid '60s, it was super mature. And so, you know, you got you, you had really amazing people doing amazing creative things over a period of time so you that between those two things the certain characters that kind of drove it Art Blakey was another one like from a whole different perspective than Miles Art Blakey was more like the guy who went out and hustled and worked and knew how to put a band together and do a presentation but it was and it was kind of he, he had the, he had a very strong chitlin circuit element you know playing for for the black folks and all that he had that really kind of going more so than Miles did I think even he really had that going so the groove was really there with him that's what made him special plus that that sense of the Art Blakey University so many like again, could pick could pick amazing cats and just make things happen. And our, yeah. Horace Silver was an offshoot of that because remember Horace Silver was the first jazz messengers. Horace Silver and the jazz messengers in the beginning in the early fifties with Horace and Art. And then he's Horace went off and did his own thing, which is his own amazing thing. Art did the jazz messengers thing, and that was an amazing thing. And then Miles came from a whole different perspective and just did the pure creativity thing. And more for for lack of a better way to describe it in, in a couple words, whatever. And he had his own litany of, of incredible players coming through him. So between all those guys, you had just, just absurdly, you know, genius cats were drawn like moth to a flame. And then just once you got them all together, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Ryan Carter, I mean, you know, you're talking about real genius cats. And I play with all of them. And they're all, I mean, you, you're around them and it's like, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. And Tony Williams, it's, uh, it's, you know, Tony, Tony's at 14 years old. Joining Miles 1516, you know, at, by the time they were filling my call, I think he was 17 maybe. And what you hear on the drums is like amazing. And I, I worked with him, you know, I was in that band for some years. And even in his 40s when I was with him, that was the age he was. It was, it was, it was like beyond, you know, you knew you were in the presence of something amazing. And yeah. so that, that, that period of the, of the late 50s and 60s just produced all that. Yeah. And that's what, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Absolutely. I like that answer. Let me ask you this. In a generic way, I want to ask you, why do you love jazz? I love jazz because number one, because it speaks to me, and it did. It did early on, like even in, in you know, and, and it's interesting because it was a kind of a gradual process. It was the instrumental funk music that was played by jazz guys, basically. You know, uh, in other words, the Grover Washingtons and the and the Wilton Felders and all those guys were jazz guys. I mean, they all could, they all could play straight ahead, but they ended up, you know, they they came up in the seventies, so that was the era was more of a funk era. Then I went backwards from there, pulled into the style of straight ahead jazz. 
But it, it, it so that took a little longer to speak to me, only because it was unfamiliar at first. But then I really learned to love that over over the period of just getting into it. And so that's number one. Number two, I have a great love and respect for the tradition of jazz and what it represents: creativity, teamwork, discipline. You know, Africa. What I've come to realize is that the energy of jazz players is related to the energy of blues players, which is related to the energy of gospel and church folks, all of which are African-American energies that are basically passed down from the slaves. You know, so you got these people who were brought over hundreds of years ago, pulled from their homes. They had to find a way to establish themselves here, and they, they figured out a way to keep their energies and pass them down to us. And jazz music is a very high manifestation of that energy because of all the high manifestation. I mean, by that, I mean... There's also all this, besides the energies and the, and the spirit of it, there's also the intellect, the intellectual capacity of these people, which is not so talked about because they're slaves, right? They're, 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 they're slaves. You don't think about how intellectual they are, but of course, if you look at the history, all the great people that have come out of African-American history, a lot of brilliance there, jazz is one great manifestation of that brilliance, and that's the other reason I really love it. You know, it's interesting. I was interviewing T.K. Blue earlier today, and he was talking about Randy Weston. And I explained oh, yeah. him the story that Randy had said to me at one point, and he parted the proverbial curtain for me. He said to me, everything that came from Africa swang, the landscape, yep. everything. Yep. And, and the yeah. way he, the, <laughs> I'm telling you, the way, the yeah, magical yeah. way that Randy explained it to me, it rose the hair on my back of my neck. Like, I, I get jazz. I get levels of it. But the way he explained the beginning etymologies of this craft that we have, Yep. made into this American invention that came about way, way before Americans even got their hands on it. It's swang. That's why. And I was like, wow. Yep. Just the way yep. he spun that, it just it, it, it was like all of the yellow light just spilled out into my brain. And it made sense. How about that? <laughs> That's cool. It, it That's was beautiful, cool. man. So That's let great. me ask you this. What is the nicest thing? One of the nicest thing out of all the fans and people that you played for, What's one of the nicest things that anybody has ever said to you? Well, what I'll say, the thing I like to hear the most, I'll, I'll say that. I, that's maybe an easier one to answer. I'll start sure. with that anyway. Is that, um, wow, I've never heard this kind of music before. You're the first concert I ever went to. I love it. I'm going to go listen to this some more. I get that regularly. People who never heard jazz before, they heard us do our thing, and we weren't holding back. We were playing our full blast, you know, thing. They, they thought, wow, that was really cool. Like, you took me on a journey. That's the kind of thing I like to hear. That's the that's uh, nice is not quite the right word, but it's it, it is something I really like to hear. It it makes you feel great when someone tells tells that tells us you took me on a journey. That's something yeah. I like to hear. Or it's the first time I heard this. I'm gonna go check some more of this out because in the end, one of the things that I think about a lot and and I have to figure out not only for myself but for the music in general is how to pull how to make more people aware of it. And this, in this day and age, it's an acquired taste for sure. Even for me, it was an acquired taste, as I already told you. I mean, I came up, I came through through jazz funk of the '70s. I came through Straight Ahead via jazz funk, which and which and I came to that via regular R&B, Isaac Hayes of all people, you know. And so, you know, to the extent that I and my band can pull folks into this music and have them participate. Because it's it's not only a commercial thing. Okay, they'll buy our records, or they'll buy somebody else's records, and they'll be part of the kind of positive flow of, of, of business towards the jazz world. It's that they themselves will also 
tap into the value of the experience. And that's real, the real deal. You know, they can get in that thing of, of getting some, some stimulation in other parts of the brain that then will, or spirit or soul, you know, or, 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 or body for that matter, that will then drive them to the next level of what they can get to. So they can get out of there, you know, because most of us people, let's face it, where most of us are doing our robot thing, we're robots, like too much of the time, sitting in front of our computers or showing up at the office or whatever it is, that's reality in the modern in the world. You know, we, we got to do our robot thing to keep everything, all the pieces moving. But the human thing, the thing that really makes us special is where the arts comes in. This is where our individual expressive, creative, that part of our existence, as far as I'm concerned, in the modern world doesn't get nearly enough feeding and stimulation in general. And so if we can as artists, you know, inspire that a little bit more out of anybody, I think we're doing something positive. 100%, man. That's a great answer. I love that. But let me ask you this. Everybody has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your business associates, those you play for. But when you wake up every day, who do you think you are? Well, I think I'm a happy guy. I think I'm a guy who's a positive, happy, joyous guy who's going to get up and spread some of that some kind of way in the most, in the most general sense. Everything from playing the musical course, which is, you know, a lot of where I'm coming from anyway, musically, but also just it happens on every level. You know, your walk, when you walk into a room, your way you dress, your physical confidence, whether you smile at somebody, look them in the eye, the tone of voice that you that you give to them, all that stuff. And so I'm a guy who's going to be a light. That's who I am. That's what I want to be. You know, just a little bit of light in a world which doesn't really in general, it, it it does what it does, but the world is, is in general not about, in terms of our day-to-day existence, not really. I think the world is about light, but I think the our, our, our modern existence is not about the light. Our modern existence is about taking care of uh, conforming and taking care of your responsibilities and that kind of thing, you know, like playing by the rules. and It's more about that and less about sharing and about being bright and light. You know, it's about... Do what you're told. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's the that's the impression I get from kind of observing things, you know. So yeah. I want to get up, and I want to, and I'll, I'll do that to the extent that I have to. Of course, I, I have no problem with that per se. I mean, it, it beats you know being a freaking you know I could be a, a chipmunk or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. or whatever you could you know you could be what with eagles that are flying or whatever. You know, there's so many. You could be a fish. You know, with with or, or, or little fish with big fish everywhere or whatever. You could you know. And it's all the, the cycle of life is what it is. It's not, luckily, I'm not that this time around. This time, I'm 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 a, a guy who can wake up every day, and every day you wake up, it's a great day, and then go and be a light and be that put that put that out there so that at least somebody taps into that and they get a piece of that and it makes them a little bit more light. I know when I see somebody, someone rolls up on me with a smile, um, it makes me a little bit. And someone it's just like if someone rolls on me with a frown, or you know, I was sitting next to a guy on a plane on the on the way on my last trip on the way out. I sat next to a guy, and the guy was just. And I got upgraded too, which is nice. You know, sometimes the upgrades it's a double edged sword. You know, but because sometimes sometimes the, the upgraded folks can be a little bit on the snobby side. And this guy was definitely in that key. <laughs> I was like, dang man, this guy. <laughs> you know, usually it's not like that. Happily, most of the time, like every time I'm traveling, at least like the like on the way back, the lady I was talking to, she was like totally cool, and it was it was nice. You know, so and and we didn't talk a lot. It was it was it wasn't necessary. It was just a matter of the interaction was pleasant, but positive, and then we just did our thing. You know, 
And I wasn't looking for anything from her. She wasn't looking for anything from me. So it was just a, a neutral, positive thing. This guy was had all the shields up, and he was trippy. It, it, it reminded me that, you know, this is, a, this is a world. People people are bogged down in what the, And I, I didn't blame him. I wasn't mad at him or nothing. But I just I just a man. Whatever's going on with him, he's having a rough way to go somehow where he can't even be open enough to be to share in, 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 a, in, a, in a basic human moment, you know. And, and, and too often our world kind of produces that kind of thing. And all he had to do, like to, to try and contrast the situation with the other lady on the way back, a, a simple, hey, man, what's up? You know, yeah, going to Germany, going back to whatever. All right, have a good flight. Yeah, cool. And that's it. And almost every time it's like that. And every yeah. once in a while I get into a long conversation and gets involved and all that stuff. That's another whole thing. But usually it's not. It's just a few basic interactions and it's positive. But the, the point is if someone approaches you, someone you interact with, on a new a new person with openness and a relaxed you know, fearless thing, that's cool. Yeah. And it makes you feel good. It makes you feel better. And if they roll on you with some fear or with some defensiveness or something negative, not that they're blamed for that because, heck, they might have gotten chewed out by their boss or by their wife or you, who knows what they went through that's dragging them down. Or they may be sick, you know, whatever. You can't blame them for it. It's just that in the end, that effect sends that much of a – it does send a – it definitely weighed on me a little bit that bit for a second. You know, I'm not, I bounced back quite quick, but it was just like I felt it, and it was interesting to feel it because it did remind me about that. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. That don't don't forget, don't don't when I'm out here, don't try not to whatever problems I'm dealing with, try not to put that on anybody because it does weigh on them as well. So if yeah. I can be the opposite of that, you know, give give put out some positive energy, that definitely has a positive effect, which then resonates, right? So in other words. I guess I want something positive. Then that makes them a little more positive, and they get, they they pass that to the next person who then you know, and that's pretty much how it goes. And the, and the converse also is true, where the dark side will bounce around in the same kind of way and kind of pull folks down a little bit. And it, you know, it's just like hmm. And most of us have a choice of that. Not always, of course, but and, and especially at any given moment, given our emotions, which of course are very real. But at any given time, we have a, really have a choice about that side of it. And so I'm a, my who I am at my very core, whatever I'm doing, playing music or, or going for a run or just going to the store or whatever, I'm going to try to be that guy who's like, pay it forward, man. Yeah, that's good. That's a great way to wrap everything up. Don, thanks for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Don for his music and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel. And you can always go to the home of Neon Jazz at the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.